This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Jack Koss is a New Zealand angler who studied law at the University of Canterbury. Since Jack's teens, he has been fixated on the allure of brown trout in the Southern Hemisphere. This fascination led him to complete his bachelor's thesis with a focus on the introduction of brown trout to New Zealand, which led him to a PhD thesis on the fishery and the role it has played over the last century. In this episode of Anchored, Jack and I discuss the man behind New Zealand's famous brown trout, how he forever changed the ecosystem, and how the species adapted to thrive in its new home. I started going to school for law and kept going at it despite not really feeling a passion for it and then sort of kept going at school because I realised school was a seriously good way to do a lot of fishing uh, without being, you know, without people complaining about me being unemployed or anything like that. I was furthering my education and then I stumbled on the best scam to do a lot of fishing which was to do a PhD and get paid for it (laughs) And, and that was bloody outstanding. I spent three years researching the introduction of brown trout to New Zealand and did a lot of field work based on that. I should point out that field work didn't really have any application because I'm a historian and it was uh, very hard to research brown trout in the field yeah. historically. <laughs> I was so ask you about that. It, it was a scam, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised that you did it in three years. I would have made that drag on for like 12. Well, you only get paid for three years. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, and then you have to start paying them. And so then the uh, the benefits of it kind of run out. 
But I took a year off after that, so don't feel like I, um, you know, I jumped straight into work. <laughs> Nobody feels bad for you. No, so, I figured. Let's talk about the history of brown trout. Now, did you do your thesis specifically in, you know, with, with brown trout in New Zealand or the history of brown trout in general? No, so it's... Uh, it's a history of the introduction of brown trout to New Zealand, going from the first introduction up to about 1890. And there was necessarily a little bit of international comparisons, you know, particularly Tasmania and a little bit in the UK, but really it's pretty much centred straight on brown trout in New Zealand. Start from the beginning. So brown trout were introduced to New Zealand in 1867. They were introduced first to Canterbury by a quite neat character called Andrew Johnson. And Andrew Johnson came over from the UK in 1864 and brought with him a tank, basically a sealed unit of goldfish, trout, crayfish, half a dozen other sort of strange and mysterious species that he was going to gift to the New Zealand government. Was um, he a biologist or just an angler? No, he, was a, he was a pisciculturalist, uh, which is this weird sort of subset of, I don't know if you'd call it science or uh, some sort of applied science that was really popular back in the 1800s. And, and I still slightly don't know why. Uh, but there were quite a few of these guys basically raising fish in tanks. And, and then, to be honest, in the UK, I don't really know what they did with them. I mean, some of them were sent to, to New Zealand, sent around the world. But I'm not really sure what they were doing domestically with them there. But no, so he failed in that attempt in 1864 completely. Got here and everything was dead except a goldfish. But in... 1867, he petitioned the Canterbury Acclimatisation Society, which is sort of a group of like-minded individuals who wanted to bring beneficial species to New Zealand. He petitioned them to basically let him pay his own way to go to Tasmania, where trout were introduced in 1864, and for him to get one pound for every trout that he brought back and was able to raise to maturity. And so he was going over to receive about 1,200 over eggs, so he was probably thinking this could be a really good payday here. Uh, three hatched. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of a struggle there. It was looking like it would be a total failure, and then really late he discovered two over, and then as he was about to throw out the remainders, there was another little hatchling there. <laughs> yeah, so those are the very first brown trout in New Zealand and Canterbury, and then rather spectacularly he managed to lose two of them. What do you mean? Where well, did he lose them? Basically, they got washed out of the pond and into the Avon River. And I always like to say, you know, as anglers, we all know the pain of losing a fish. But, but can you imagine the pain of losing two out of the only three brown trout in the entire country? But, but then somehow, and this is possibly the most spectacular part of the whole story, two years later, he recaptured them. Wait, how big were they when you... And how did he catch them? So as they flushed down into the Avon River, they were basically released into the wild as tiny little, you know, little sort of fingerling size. Was there anything that could eat them? I mean, in New there Zealand, were eels, just, oh, shags. Right, of course, yeah, of course, that's right. Mm, yeah, no, so there were plenty of predators, and so it's a, it's slightly miraculous that that they survived both of them, and that then they ran to spawn, and because the water's so clear, Johnson and another group saw the fish in the Avon, and built an apparatus to capture them, and so they then were returned to the ponds and. And he has this great saying about the truant appeared none the worse for wear for their absence. <laughs> <laughs> but much bigger. Yeah, so they, they'd grown substantially in two years, you know. I mean, everyone knows the reputation New Zealand has for, for fish size, and obviously it was true from the get-go. That is amazing. When the Brits were bringing them into Tasmania, didn't they bring them over in peat moss? 
Yeah, they put them over in um, basically wooden boxes lined with sterilised moss and, and kept them wet and then they were packed with ice and then more moss and sort of building a rudimentary insulation system. Yeah, but this is before refrigerated shipping or anything like that and so it's it's quite a technological feat for them to have achieved. And we're, we're talking seriously long journey across both tropics and, and I mean it's incredible that they were able to keep them cold enough for long enough for them to survive to Tasmania. I think of the introductions, that's the most impressive one. Mm. What was the end goal? The end goal, so the end goal kind of goes back to the reason for bringing them in the first place, which was that there was a perception amongst British colonists that New Zealand's rivers were barren, that that we somehow were lacking these desirable species. And, and you know, everyone knows New Zealand does have quite a unique ecology. We've got a really unusual dynamic with no land mammals and a lot of birds that filled the space. But we also had quite an interesting dynamic with our indigenous fish species as well and that there were virtually none that the British colonists could relate to. And so there was basically this perceived omission, um, you know, a failing on Mother Nature's part, and that's what they were trying to rectify. What is here? I mean, there are galaxia, there yeah, are so there's, Yeah, there's a lot of small migratory and some non-migratory galaxids, um, which are sort of a, a small bullyish set of species, white bait are the most... Whitebait's a collective name for them, but that's how most people would know them as. Uh, we have some that grow up to, you know, maybe two or three pounds for a giant cockapoo, which which could potentially have provided sport. We're very large eels, and uh, at the time there was a native grayling, which wasn't really a grayling at all. It was more like a mullet. Mm-hmm. And actually, fascinatingly, that is the only saltwater species of fish in the entire world and that it spent some of its life history in the salt to ever go extinct. Well, I was going to ask you, did the brown trout wipe, or did the introduction of trout wipe out any species here? So I don't think you could attribute the introduction of trout to, or you could attribute the extinction of any native species to the introduction of trout. They certainly predated upon the grayling, but more it was a case of habitat loss as a result of you know changing land use following colonisation. Even back then? Yep. Wow, yeah. so were their numbers already at risk? Because, I mean, the impact that they had back then is, it pales in comparison to, to today. It does, yeah. So, so I'm guessing they must have not been a, a particularly stable species anyway. But there was a fair amount of fishing pressure directed towards them as well. And yeah, that in conjunction with, with habitat loss led to their extinction by, I think, about 1930, I want to say. But I'm, I'm pulling a date out there. Yeah, so it wasn't an immediate thing. It was sort of a, a long-term decline. So when did fishing pick up around here? Well, fishing picked up pretty much straight away. So originally, the acclimatisation societies tried to enforce a basically a ban on fishing to allow the populations to develop. But by 1875, which is eight years after trout were introduced, Otago had instituted a fishing season, and then the other regions pretty much followed straight away. Yeah, and I have no doubt there were people poaching them long before that. <laughs> yeah, especially to eat, right? Yeah, to eat, for sport. Uh, you, you have to remember that, that New Zealand was founded on aspirations of egalitarianism. You know, these were people who were coming from an increasingly industrialised Britain and were seeking opportunities they didn't have back there. And so these people are the ones who are willing to take action and leave the UK are probably the same people who see a trout and think, well, I'm allowed to do that here and, and fish for it. Where do brown trout come from? Are they from... They're not from England, are they? Are they Germ, German? Well, they're, they're from... I mean, they've actually got a really wide 
range. It's an Atlantic drainage typically, but but all through Western Europe and the Mediterranean and parts of North Africa. Oh, yeah, so, really? Yeah, yeah. So I think there's, I think Algeria has and Morocco might have native populations of brown trout. Cool. Yeah, no, quite seriously cool. I'd like to go fish with them sometime. No kidding. <laughs> so the fish here, do they have any science or data on when the fish started to become anadromous? Or are the brown trout here anadromous in some rivers? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say they... And you, you're getting into kind of definitional semantics here in terms of whether they actually truly go to sea or whether yeah. they are estuarine or, or not. There, there are certainly some uh, anadromous migration so, so brown trout populating other rivers by running along the coast and moving up another waterway. Uh, and my guess is that would have happened straight away. I don't have any research on it, but th- the reality is it almost certainly would have happened. And talking to any scientist, the, the kind of consensus is that whilst brown trout were introduced to an enormous range of rivers in New Zealand, you'd probably have had to introduce them to about three and just let them do their thing to achieve the same result. Might take a little longer, but we would have got there in the end. Well, did they try to... I mean, I know that they tried to introduce salmon. Mm-hmm. Why didn't that take like the brown trout did? Well, it did take initially. So so really, if you can think of a fish species, it was probably attempted to be introduced here. Even like the fi- the species of Pacific salmon? Pacific salmon are here. So we have, well, we have Chinook salmon, here. we have sockeye salmon. Oh, you guys uh, have sockeye here? Yeah. Not kokanee, sockeye. Uh, kokanee, sorry. Okay, yeah, gotcha. yeah. So... Um, Landlocked, sure. landlocked sockeye salmon. Do they try chum and coho and? Not things? as far as I know, but but like I said, so the way I conducted my research was so focused on trout that occasionally I'd get kind of peripheral aspects of of other species. But I mean, I, I read sixty seven thousand newspaper articles on brown trout alone, and so I wasn't keen to do too much more reading <laughs> outside of that. Well, let's talk about the timeline of these trout. So then, then what happens after the fishing starts to take off? Does, does the economy boom? Do they start focusing on tourism? Do they start focusing on, on farming? What happened in the... Let's just bump ahead to... You said you finished your studies... About 1890, 18, yeah. Yeah, by yeah. 1890, what was the focus? Well, 1890, you saw uh, quite a lot of fishing tourism. So carriage horses and railway lines were advertised fishing packages in conjunction with accommodation. And so you could go and drive out to or take a train out to Clyde and go fishing there if you're from Dunedin. Wait, yeah. Did you have to be rich to do this? Was it like a well, royal I thing? I don't think so. I mean I mean fishing licenses were on a cost basis about the same as they were as they are now in New Zealand. They're not too dissimilar. They had fishing licenses back then? Yep, yep. So wow. the climatisation societies put fishing licenses in straight away as an attempt to recoup on their costs. And you know as you've you've spoken to to Martin about fishing game it is simply a continuation of the acclimatisation societies. These societies continued the entire way through from inception to their disbanding in the Conservation Act of, of 1987. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. Mm. So do people come all the way from North America? Do people make the trek to go trout fishing or come in from Australia just to go trout fishing? There, there was a little bit of tourism. Um, so you've got some great books like Captain Hamilton's Trout Fishing in Maori Land, which I think was published about the turn of the century, which, which would have brought a small amount of tourism there. But I mean, the reality is it just wasn't anywhere near as easy to travel in those days as it is now. And, and so you had you had a small extent, but you didn't have the trout bums that we have now. <laughs> How did the Maoris handle it? Were they excited to have this food source available to them or were they were they against it because suddenly you're introducing a species into their native land 
So you've you've hit on a pretty hot uh, hot topic there. Um, so let's see. I would say that the introduction in and of itself perhaps wasn't as problematic as the fact that trout displace certain native species, which Maori relied upon as a customary harvest. Like what? So koaro, um, which are a small. A, a galaxid subspecies, which which were a really popular harvest, um, and they would net them and then eat them in abundance. Is mm-hmm. that how that worked? Yep, yep. So that was particularly the um, Rotorua lakes and regions around there. Uh, and trout decimated the populations of those lakes after their introduction. But I think the real issue is that Maori weren't allowed to fish for trout, other than buying a license. So they'd gone from losing or from having a customary harvest that was then removed by the introduction of trout, or at least limited by the introduction of trout, which they weren't allowed to fish for. And truthfully, had I think, I think had they been allowed to fish for trout, the opposition would have been much less. Uh, I, I don't, you know, effect, we're, we're kind of guessing here because you can't go back 100 years and ask people, but, but that would be my gut based on it is that it was the inability to fish for them for free and take them as a food source that was of greater issue. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there was a, you know, there was a, a sadness and sorrow at losing a customary food source, but I think it was that there was an expectation that they should pay a fee to try, you know, to, to, to fish for trout. I think that was the, the even bigger issue. So I'm not going to make you dive into, you know, the politics of the Maoris today because I would really like to sit down with the Maoris and, and ask them myself. So we'll just keep, I don't want to derail the conversation. Sounds good. So in all of your research, what was the most interesting story that you ended up reading about this introduction? Oh, crikey, there were some absolute gems. Um, but my favorite was in in Dunedin and I think it was 1892. And it's a slightly, it's a, I guess it's a, you know, black comedy, but a guy was out fishing and he hooked a fish, tripped, fell over, hit his head, he died, his son went looking for him the next morning, found his father's body with a fishing rod next to it, the fish was still on the line, and his son proceeded to land the fish. Wow. You couldn't make it up. Okay. Yeah. That's horrible. It's, it's bizarre, but absolutely fascinating. What else did you find? I mean, I, I guess a, a lot of really interesting stories of the lengths that people went to to release these fish and, and how big of a deal it was to them. So after the introduction of of Ova to Canterbury, 500 people queued up to try and see the Ova. I don't know what they were expecting to see. I mean, it was literally a box with little fish eggs in it, um, but it was a really, really big deal. And I guess that was kind of one of the really cool things for me about the the nature of my research and that I wasn't looking so much at official records as I was newspapers. And you get this real broad sense of the significance for colonial society as a whole of the introduction of these fish. But yeah, a lot of amazing stories about how people would ride horseback for three days to release them into a headwaters system of a, of a stream. Um, Could it just be anybody or were these people who worked with the, with the organisation? Well, I mean... The organisation was pretty loose, so if you were a member of the organisation and you were willing to do the work, or probably even if you were just willing to do the work, then they'd happily happily let you. Um, so originally, over when when there was sort of a, a low supply of over, um, and particularly before New Zealand's own breeding populations got going, 
you had to purchase over, so you'd purchase them to introduce to streams on your property. And so that was more of a case of, of wealthier landowners who wanted a, a private fishing experience would buy trout to put them on their land. But as over became a lot more plentiful, they would give volunteers a bucket of, of hatchlings, and they would then be carried by horseback or um, the, the people cutting the famous Milford track. They took a bucket of trout to release into the rivers along the way. I mean, really quite widespread and usually a volunteer base doing the instructions. And are the rivers prolific enough? Not all of them. They can't have enough In terms of carrying life. it? I would say there are pretty fairly few rivers that wouldn't support a population of brown trout. And now that's whether it is based on more a, um, a fish diet or an insect diet. You know, there's, there's a lot of range there. So a lot of um, the West Coast rivers will have the fishing concentrated around the river mouths because the rivers themselves might not have perfect habitat for trout, but they're really plentiful. There's a lot of food at the river mouths, and so you'll get populations of sea run or estuarine browns there. Right. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, I would say New Zealand is about as ideal of an environment for brown trout as you come up with. Has the size changed over the years? Did they have bigger fish back then before all the pressure and commercialization? It's hard to say. I mean, I think in, in the immediate aftermath of introduction, when you had these these environments that were so fertile and that hadn't had any predation from trout or their elk, you got some enormous fish. So, for instance, there's stories of people catching 24-pound browns out of the Avon River in the middle of Christchurch. But, you know, that's no different to the fish that came out of Otamangakau after it was flooded and and trucked onto there. So I would say maybe slightly larger back then, but not markedly so. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Duke Cannon, the world's coolest men's soap and grooming company. From their classic big-ass brick of soap, scrubs, balms, aftershave, deodorants, and more, Duke Cannon products are available in the most wonderful sense known to mankind. Bourbon, beer, campfire, fresh pine, leaf and leather, finally a company who understands the value in smelling like a proper man. You won't need to worry about smelling like you've had a night on the town, though. Their beer soap has a wonderful sandalwood scent to it. But Duke Cannon is more than clever marketing and delicious products. They also partner with active duty military to develop new ideas and review products. Anything that doesn't meet the high standards of soldiers simply doesn't happen. Plus, they give back a portion of their proceeds to directly support the men and women who serve the USA. Visit DukeCannon.com right now and get 15% off your first order with the promo code FISHING. You'll receive free shipping on orders over $35. Check out their website, and I promise you, you will not be disappointed. You do not need to consult your doctor to see if Duke Cannon is right for you. Side effects may include humming the national anthem in the shower, flaunting your thick hair as though you belong on television, and close encounters with wildlife while hunting and fishing. Big ass soap refers to the size of the block and can be used on asses both big and small. What do they use the uh, thesis for? I mean, effectively, it, it's what you want to make of it. So something like that could simply sit in the archives as an academic record, and people could cite it in further academic works. For me, that wasn't what I wanted. You know, I thought this is this is not a boring PhD thesis. I hope you know. Presumably, if you're listening to this, you have some sympathy with the fact that it's quite interesting. And so, I, you know, I wanted to spread that. I, I think I think historians have a bad habit of, you know boarding themselves up in ivory towers and staying in the academic realm. But that's not who this... That's not the people this history is important for. This history is important for, for Kiwis, for anglers, for people who travel around the world because they love New Zealand's brown trout. And so, 
With that in mind, I made a film a couple of years ago with a friend, Ben Pierce from Bozeman, which was kind of a far less academic and much more palatable version of the thesis. <laughs> yeah. You know, breaking it down into a nice 21-minute film. And um, Is it online? I'd love to include a link. Yeah, so it's, it's on YouTube. Um, I can send you a link for it. I will yeah. include that in the notes, everybody, so you can watch it yourself. <laughs> Have any other countries used New Zealand as an example or as an influence as far as stocking rivers or introducing fish? Do you mean in terms of they've taken trout from New Zealand? No, looked at the success of New Zealand and said, you know, we would really love to have that, especially for economic gain. Well, I think I think immediately after the interaction, there, it was part of a, basically a whole system of worldwide interactions and a, a massive exchange of of organisms, effectively all around the world. You know, it's the great wave of colonization and, and trying to optimize these new environments. I say optimise in a very loose sense there, but yeah. So I think I think its success would have been would have been sort of inspirational to other countries. But truthfully, I don't think it made them have. I don't think trout were introduced on that basis. I think it would have just kind of motivated them to keep trying if they weren't initially succeeding, because really they were they were already trying. Did they document any of the numbers? Do you know how many fish there were back then versus now from a fish? fishery health stance, mm. were there more fish back then than there are now? I couldn't tell you. I mean, I can tell you how many fish were introduced at the time, how many over were brought over, uh, but I couldn't tell you, you know, population dynamics back then. I could hazard a guess uh, that we've lost a huge amount of habitat, and through habitat loss, we've had serious reduction in fisheries. And, and you know, and that's, a, that's not really a guess, that's the reality. But, but other than that, I, I couldn't say. All right. I don't know the history. Is there anything else that you can think of that's really interesting about the history that I should be asking? Well, one thing I was going to say is that um, an interesting thing I came across in my research was the possibility that rainbow trout were actually introduced six years earlier than we believed. Oh. Yeah. But still after the brown trout or before the brown trout? Still after the brown trout. Okay. Yeah. So the the current perception is that rainbow trout were introduced from California in 1883. They were introduced to Auckland. Were they steelhead or rainbows? Well... Is there a genetic difference? Okay, I gotcha. All right. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not totally sure. I'm not, I, People love to say that they're a steelhead here, but it, again, it's a semantics thing. Well, I would say they were steelhead stock. I mean, they're from the McLeod River in okay. California, as far as I can tell. So, so they would be, even if the specific fish that were brought over or the over didn't come from a sea-run fish, they would be capable of that life history. I mean, my, my understanding of steelhead life history is not great, but... But as I understand it, a steelhead can produce rainbow trout and steelhead as can a rainbow trout. So, yep. so I'd say they, yep, they, they... For people listening, I mean, a, a rainbow... So a steelhead in the river spawning, say a female steelhead, can have... You'll watch her. She'll have a buck with her, and then there'll be a little sneaky rainbow, and he can get in, and he can... He's actually more efficient at fertilizing her eggs than the full-size buck because he's faster, <laughs> and he's younger, and et cetera, et cetera. Oh, well, fascinating. Yeah, it was really interesting re- learning about that. Yeah, so whether they're steelhead or not, is pretty much impossible to say. But what I found out was that in 1877, there was an introduction of what they thought were brook trout. So brook trout were first brought over in, I think, 1875. But this introduction of brook trout seemed to grow slightly bigger and was slightly more silver. And effectively, what I think happened is they just misidentified them as brook trout. And they, you know, before they could really know for sure... They introduced them all into streams around the Auckland region. And so we'll never know this definitively, 
But there's a very real possibility that the rainbow trout were actually introduced in 1877 instead of 1883. Which, you know, as a historian go through these records is quite a cool thing to find. <laughs> yeah, where did you find all your records when you were doing your studies? So most of my stuff was on a online newspaper repository called Papers Past, and the wonderful thing for me was that it's um, it has an optical text recognition software applied to it, and so you can search the database. So you can keyword search the database, and it's the only thing that made this research feasible. Is this available online for people? Yeah, it's a public resource at all. It's uh, yeah, it's totally free. It's called paperspast.govt.nz, and you can type in what you want to find about. You can limit it by region, by time period. It's, it's a New Zealand database? Yeah, yeah, it's a government database. Wow, that's yeah. really interesting. Did you go through any records of uh, from the English? Uh, a little bit, but it's the problem is that once you start down that rabbit hole, where do you stop? And and so my real focus was, was on New Zealand. The only other country I looked at in any serious sense was Australia and Tasmania because that's where ours directly came from. But I decided really to basically focus pretty much exclusively on New Zealand. Did the guy who, what was the guy's name who brought them over again? Well, the first introduction was a guy called Andrew Johnson. Okay, yeah, so, so Johnson. Did he end up living in New Zealand? Yeah, he did. Um, so he was a really interesting character. He was the curator of the Canterbury Acclimatisation Society until because of a like a little personality clash with one of the other heads of the society, a guy called Samuel Charles Farr, he was fired from it. And so after being fired, he thought, well, bugger this, I'm still going to raise trout. So he set up his own little private hatchery in Opawa and proceeded to distribute trout all around the country himself. And so you could tell he was clearly a very passionate man about it. But I think his role in the introduction was really diminished because of the spat. The history of the Canterbury Acclimatisation Society was written by Samuel Farr, who Johnson disagreed with. And so Johnson was kind of written out of the record there. And so as I was going through, I kind of felt this, um, you know, quite neat sort of, I guess, rewriting of history, rediscovering of history that I could, you know, bring Johnson's contribution to the fore. So yeah. you could see in all of the documentation that he was slowly getting pushed out of it? Yeah, I mean, the newspaper records make, you know, give you no doubt at all that he was incredibly influential. He was, he was the single person most responsible for their introduction to New Zealand. But subsequent sort of publications and the more the more popular documents really diminished his role and it was the Canterbury Acclimatisation Society that did it rather than Johnson. But the first introduction, Johnson paid for himself. He, he did it under the auspices of the Canterbury Society, but if it hadn't been for him saying, I'll do this, I'm going, I'll pay for it myself, then they wouldn't have come in 1867. It's as simple as that. Well, that was I was actually going to ask you that in the beginning. So the Queen didn't pay for him to come over. He paid for it himself. Mm -hmm. Jeez, that would be an expensive journey. Yeah, yeah. So his plan was to move to New Zealand then. So it wasn't just that he was trying to bring fish. It was that he was moving and he was interested in pisciculture and so he brought fish with him. Excuse my ignorance to the Southern mm -hmm. Hemisphere, but Australia is obviously, we all know, is made up of or was made up of convicts. Mm -hmm. And what year was that? I couldn't tell you. But it was 1800s, wasn't it? Or was it earlier? It would have been, it would have been the 1700s. Okay. Yeah. So at that point then, because New, New Zealand was not convicts. No. So no. people were relocating to New Zealand for quality of life? Or were they... Well, were there's, they... A, there's a lot of different reasons there. I mean, you had um, early economic outposts like whaling stations, sealing stations. Um, you then had a wave of organised settlement, which was was effectively a company would set up in the UK and they'd sell you a ticket to New Zealand. They'd kind of arrange for you to 
come and live in one of their organised settlements. So Wellington's one, Nelson's one, Christchurch, Otago. They're they're really all they're, they're called Wakefieldian settlements. They're Edward Gibbon Wakefield, who was kind of the orchestrator of this grand plan. And so he would bring bring over all those schemes, brought over a huge number of people. And then you had the gold rushes of the 1860s, which brought a massive wave of people, some of whom stayed, some of whom left. But yeah, really, I think the biggest thing was, was quality of life. It was kind of an aspirational move for them. They wanted the opportunities they didn't have in Britain. And so, yeah, I think, I think that really ties in with, with the introduction of trout as well. Were they using nymphs and stuff, or were they using streamers? Because the English primarily swung streamers for salmon. Were they using their their salmon tactics here? It's mostly lure fishing to start with, yeah. yeah. The other thing I should say is I actually quite consciously decided not to dive too deep into the fishing side of it. I mean, I, I was. it's a 330-page document anyway, and so you sort of have to apply some slight pragmatic limitations on yourself, otherwise you're never going to leave. And, yeah. you know, if they'd been willing to keep paying me, I'd have kept fishing <laughs> and kept riding for a few more years. Um, so what's your future look like, Jack? What are you going to be doing here at Fish and Game? So I'm working as a policy advisor at Fish and Game, and that's a pretty open-ended, open-ended position. Uh, but my main focus is going to be on pressure-sensitive fisheries in New Zealand and looking at bringing in management strategies to protect these fisheries, basically. Do you know, and, and this is just kind of, I don't know if you'll have the answer for this, but do you know if over the space of the last 150 years, if there was ever a point in time where it looked like the fishery was going to be wiped out? Or is this the most uh, in danger it's been? Yeah, I'd say it's a constantly evolving threat, and it's just getting worse and worse, basically. Does anyone really care besides tourism? I mean, if Well, I mean, New Zealand anglers care hugely. Um, and I think... Uh, I think if it can be communicated correctly to the New Zealand public, they too will care because the reality is that the people who are typically standing up and fighting for these resources are anglers, fish and game, bodies like that who, who you know, we do derive a, a recreational benefit from them, but we also protect them generally. We, you know, clean water and clean and plentiful water is not the exclusive domain of trout. It benefits indigenous species as well. Um, and so, yeah, I think people are hugely passionate about water quality in New Zealand. It's one of our biggest issues currently. Do you guys ever get in a situation, though, where you've got, say, a mining company wants to come in and the argument is, well, that fish is not indigenous, it's introduced. And so you're, you're facing that battle? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty common, um, common complaint. There is, there is some recognition of trout and salmon in New Zealand's planning legislation, um, but often there are is almost no situation where trout do not coexist with native species. So the same impact done to trout would also be done to native species as well. So for instance, the, the Nevis River, the water conservation order that was placed on that was done on the basis of a native galaxid that was found up there. It was funded by Fish and Game, you know, who represent trout and trout fishermen. But the reason it was granted was because of the, uh, an endemic population of a native fish. Interesting. Mm, yeah, so it's this weird situation where we, we're portrayed as quite an oppositional group, you know, that, that there's this dichotomy between Indigenous and, and introduced. But the reality is I think it, it can be managed in a way that works for all parties concerned, you know, for the, for the sort of greater good of New Zealand's ecology. Talk to me a little bit more about the salmon fishing, if you can. Yeah, so the one thing I'd say is that we are now known as a as one of the world's premier brown trout destinations, but actually the people introducing 
uh, trout and salmon would have rather probably had salmon than trout. Um, you know, that was the this, the king of fish. It was the real, the one that was just impossible to fish for if you weren't wealthy and landed in the UK. And so that was the real focus. And in the UK, you can go fishing for Atlantic salmon and it costs you a fortune. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, any Joe Blow can go brown trout fishing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's still there's still a lot of costs in the UK right. with, with trout I mean, fishing, though, but, but was, yeah, it it's not the same. Compared to the king salmon. Exactly, yeah. And so that dynamic came through a little bit in New Zealand as well, particularly in Otago. So Otago's very Scottish. Mm. It's a Scots Presbyterian population originally. Um, and there was a real focus on salmon there. That was, that was clearly what they wanted. But my sort of very loose understanding is that there are much more fragile fish. And so even getting them to New Zealand proved incredibly difficult. And then when they came to New Zealand, because of their kind of life history, they would run to sea and often not return, or you'd have very low ratios of returns. So for a, for a brief period, we were able to, or uh, acclimatisation societies were able to establish a recreational fishery on the Waitaki and even a very small canning The Waitaki fishery. had Atlantic salmon? Yeah, coming. yeah. And I mean, not just living in the river, but also returning? Were they... Running to sea and coming back. And, and you wow. know, big fish. There's a few great old photos you can see of guys holding 30-pound Atlantic salmon by the tail they've just caught in the Waitaki. That uh, is so cool. What happened? It just faded away. I, I really I couldn't give you much more information than that other than the returns were so low and they just they just all of a sudden stopped returning entirely. Yeah, and there's still rumoured to be a few landlocked populations of Atlantic salmon in some of the fjord and lakes, but I haven't heard a confirmed report of anything being caught for a long time. But the Chinook fishing is pretty strong around here. Yeah, although that's massively threatened as well. But but there is a there is a reasonably strong Chinook fishery on the east coast of the South Island and a few rivers on the west coast as well. Yeah, do you think it's just ocean survival? Oh, crikey, there's, there's all sorts of uh, all sorts of theories about it. I mean, habitat loss, overfishing. Yeah, there, there's a lot of research being done on that. That's one of the real focus points for fishing game at the moment is trying to work out ways to to build that back up. Basically, okay. yeah. Is there anything that you would like to add or ask me? No, I think I'm I think I'm good as far as I can think. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah. Cheers for having me. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review about Anchored online.